got it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open your word to us this morning, God, and bring revelation, knowledge, and understanding to every one of the hearers this morning. For faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Somewhere along the line, my wife, we have a library at home. Everyone should have a library, whether it's on your computer or whether you have books on the shelf. I like books. But somewhere along the line, we have a little book called The Doctor at Calvary. And it's a very interesting book. I read most of it while studying for this and got a little bit of insight out of it. But the What I want to preach about today is the cross, the crucifixion. Notice the opening scriptures. Paul, he's talking to the Corinthian church there. He writes this letter. He says, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony or the mystery of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The crucifixion, the birth, the ministry, the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is the most important event that has ever happened in the whole entire history of the universe. I don't pretend to completely understand all of it, but Christ crucified is the important part because, well, Part of the important part, the resurrection is also. But because at the crucifixion, Jesus paid the price for the entire universe to be redeemed from the hand of the enemy, which had been forfeited by Adam. If you've been following along in our Bible studies and uh, uh, preaching and teaching over the last few years, we understand that when you're born as a natural person, you're born into Adam. And in God's eyes, you're either in Adam or in Christ. And the only way to get out of Adam and into Christ is to get Christ in you. And you do that by invitation. You invite Him into your life to be the Lord of your life as your Savior and your King. So, um, Paul obviously had lots of issues with the Corinthian church. To be a Corinthian in those days was uh, to be kind of like living in uh, Las Vegas, or worse. It was a wicked place. Uh, They were in the Roman Empire. Uh, Idolatry was rampant. Um, They probably had their own American Idol or Corinthian Idol TV show if they had TV back then. But they had idols, and you had to sacrifice to these idols, and so it made life complicated. So Paul comes with the simplicity of the gospel. It's Christ, Him crucified. Why did Jesus have to be crucified? Well, they could have executed Him any way they wanted. But that was the normal execution for treason in the Roman Empire. Obviously, you know history, uh, Israel was under the control and rule of the Roman Empire at that time. According to the prophecy of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue that represented all the different historical kingdoms. So, 
Why was Jesus tried for treason? Well, what did the Jewish people say when they brought Jesus to Pilate? They said, he's an evildoer. Well, that's not good enough to put him to death. What proof did they have? They didn't have any. Well, he made himself the son of God. That spooked Pilate. Whoa, son of God. In Roman thought, son of God was a superhero. Oh, man, why would we kill this guy if he's a superhero? That didn't convince Pilate. Finally, they told Pilate, he made himself a king. I have no king but Caesar. That got his attention. Oh, okay, well, if he's going to be a king, and they told him, if you recognize him as a king, you're no friend of Caesar. And so Pilate gets this in his head. They're accusing me of treason if I let this man go. That's not good for me, because if Caesar hears about it, that's the end of Pilate. He gets executed. So Jesus has to be executed for treason. And of course, if you know the story, Pilate writes the charges against Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They put that on the cross. Any event, so I was reading about how they did crucifixion. Most people think of a cross as like a small letter T. But in actuality, most crosses were like the Greek capital letter T, tau, which is a post and a horizontal member on top. And the author of the book is saying that they usually kept the upright piece in place all the time. And they made the condemned person carry their horizontal piece, and then they would nail their hands to it, and it had a post. And there was a hole in the horizontal piece. They'd just lift it up high enough to get his feet off the ground and drop it on. Then lift the feet up and nail them into the cross, the upright part. And then the person eventually would just suffocate. Couldn't breathe anymore in that position. The arms were started like this, but the weight of the body would pull him down. And eventually that person couldn't breathe, and carbon dioxide builds up, and I believe it's called carbolic acid builds up in the body and you get muscle cramps and you, maybe you could push up with your legs a little bit, but eventually you can't breathe and you die because of that. So, but the significant part of Jesus being on that cross is he was innocent. There was no real reason for him legally to be on that cross according to Roman law. He tells Pilate, well, you said I'm a king. Who told you I'm a king? Well, the, your people told me. So he's put on there for treason, and uh, Pilate is amazed that he doesn't defend himself. So, let's go to our second scripture. We want to know Christ and Him crucified. Where'd that come from? Wrong one! Oh, it should have been Romans 2.21. Sorry. If you have your Bibles, I sent the Scriptures to Pastor Wayne because I don't know how to do this. But if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 2, verse 21. Where it is? Huh, should have been Romans. Time out. Praise God. Uh, the righteousness of God. Chapter 3, verse 21. 
Sorry, I put the wrong number there. Chapter 3, verse 21. Read with me. Now, but now, not later, but now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And verse 22. There it is. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So, the righteousness of God demands that somebody pay the price for sin. In uh, Vine's Expository Dictionary of Greek New Testament words, he's talking about the righteousness of God. It denotes an attribute of God consistent with His nature and promises. How many know God is holy? How many know sin is not holy? Therefore, they are incompatible. On the cross or the crucifixion, God demonstrated that He is neither indifferent to sin nor regards it lightly. It cost Jesus His life. And the most amazing thing is is that Jesus took the sins of the whole world upon Himself on the cross. I still don't understand that, but I'm glad He did. Because the crucifixion demonstrates the quality of holiness that must find expression in God's condemnation of sin. Why is sin so bad? Because it destroys people. It ruins lives. It ruins health, it ruins relationships, it ruins nations. Sin is a reproach to any nation, the Bible says. So, how many remember Luke chapter 4, verse 27? Probably have to look it up. After the resurrection, Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus with two of the disciples and they don't recognize Him. And it says in verse 27, and beginning at Moses, All the prophets, he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We've been doing a survey of the Old Testament, and I have a list. If you would like to get it, uh, let me know. Every book in the Old Testament has something that mentions Christ. Something. The whole Old Testament, which is the scriptures, Moses and all the prophets, every single book has something about Christ. How many know that the word Christ is a Greek word? It corresponds to the Jewish word Messiah. So you could, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. So beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he means to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In Acts chapter 26, verses 22 and 23, Paul is defending himself before King Agrippa. And he says, therefore, and the therefore is because he's explaining why the Jewish people want to kill him. He says, therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said, that the Messiah would suffer, that He would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. 
That's basically the gospel message, that Jesus died, rose again, according to the Scriptures. Now, this is an interesting Scripture, Romans chapter 8, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. What did God do? He condemned sin in the flesh. This is uh, the ESV. I have the New King James. You could tweak the uh, pronunciation and the, um, uh, what's the word, the articulation, the uh, uh, punctuation a little bit. And you could stop your sentence and say, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Put a period there. And then read, on account of sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. How did God, or what did God do when He condemned sin in the flesh? First of all, let's look at this phrase, uh, God sending His own Son. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's exposition, a commentary on the New Testament, or the whole Bible actually, uh, when it uses this phrase, His own Son, the commentators say that human language is unable to properly define this relationship. How many have ever been trying to explain something about the things of God to somebody and they just don't get it because you don't have the words? Sometimes, because our human mind is like a little pea in a boxcar, compared to trying to understand and comprehend an infinite God. You cannot do it. You'll never know everything until you get to heaven. For now we see a little bit. Then we shall see and know everything even as we are known of Him. So, human language is unable to completely define the relationship of God the Father God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anybody try to explain the Trinity to somebody? Well, it's like um, steam and water and ice. They're all the same thing in different forms. It's like an egg. It's got a shell, and it's got the white part, and it's got the yellow part. And it's three different parts, but it's an egg. And they just look at you like, they're right. And they don't get it. Because human language is unable to completely explain it. However, this relationship is put forward here to enhance the greatness and define the nature of the relief provided. God Himself came to earth, became a human being like us, this relief. Anybody rest? <laughs> you know, you go through life, how am I? And you're, you're tense and you're stressed. It's like, how oh, am I going to pay the bills? And how oh, am I going to this, that, and the other thing? And you're stressed. And you want relief. I remember one morning, I woke up, and I was stressed. God, I got my house payment coming. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm out of work. I've been out of work for I don't know how long. I got out of my house early in the morning, and I walked around the block talking to God. God, I need your help. I don't know what to do. But when I got home, I felt peace. And then not shortly afterwards, I received an inheritance from one of my brothers who had passed away. And it's like God said, here's some relief. What we all need as human beings is relief 
from sin and its influence. Listen to what else the commentator says. Sin is no property of humanity at all. Sin was never ever supposed to be part of our lives. Ever. But only sin is the disordered state of our souls as the fallen family of Adam. That's why you have to get out of Adam and into Christ. So you can get the disorder ordered. So you can get relief. The atonement not only covers sin, but is meant to destroy its dominion and root it out altogether. That's good news. Can you say amen? The enemy has been condemned. That's why it says he condemned sin in the flesh because the enemy has been condemned and judged to lose his power over human beings. Wouldn't that be wonderful if there was no more sin in the world? Nobody breaking into your house and stealing your stuff. Nobody lying to you. Nobody cheating you. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Praise God. He condemned sin in the flesh. But what did God do? The question is, who is Jesus and what did He do? Anybody ever see that coexist bumper sticker got all the religious symbols on it? Every time I see that, I feel like stopping the car, running them off the road and say, what's wrong with you? What is this? Don't you understand what you're displaying here? Jesus. What's that? <laughs> oh, sorry. But <laughs> yes, well, no, you can't run people off the road and beat them up. I heard this one old guy, he said, the pastor was preaching one time, he said, I had a couple of, a, a biker guy, I mean, a real, real biker and my church gets saved, and he says, come to me. And he says, hey, Pastor, I got one of my buddies saved. I had to stuff his head down the toilet and force him to accept Jesus, but he got saved. <laughs> That's to be voluntary. But Jesus must have the preeminence. Praise God. <laughs> All right. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power or made void. How many know there's not enough sin in the universe to void and make powerless the cross of Christ? Not enough sin in the universe to exhaust the forgiveness that's available to humanity and the power to set people free. Praise God. And verse 18, notice in verse... Wrong one. Sorry. In verse, uh, this one here. Whoops, wrong one. I went too far. Verse 17. Notice it says, words of eloquent wisdom. And then in verse 18, he says, the word. So it goes from plural words to a single word. The word made flesh. The word of the cross. Hallelujah. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, or rather those who are on the way of perishing. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be thereon. But narrow is the gate that leads to salvation. But to us who are being saved, or who are in the way of salvation, it is the power of God. In Acts chapter 24, verse 14, Paul's defending himself before 
Governor Felix before King Agrippa had come. And he says, according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, excuse me, believe in all things which are written in the law and the prophets. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, Paul was on his journey to Damascus to arrest anyone of the way. There's an uh, older gentleman, I don't know if he's still alive anymore, Pastor Jack Hayford. The name of his church was the Church on the Way. Are you on the way? Today's trick question. Are you on the way? It's actually not a trick question. It's a very important question. Are you on the way? Have you started on the path that God has for you? Are you on the way? Are you on the way? They called it a way. They called it they, in Acts chapter 24. They didn't believe that that was the way to worship God. That you don't have to do animal sacrifices anymore. That one sacrifice for sin was sufficient for all time because the law and the prophet said so. Obviously, Paul had a hard time convincing some people. They tried to kill him quite often. One city, they <laughs> stoned him and took him outside, threw rocks at him, left him for dead. Can you imagine their surprise when he got back up and walked back into the city? I would have liked to see the look on their faces. Well. Hi guys, I'm back. <laughs> Praise God. Are you on the way? What shall we do? Acts chapter 2, verse 37. The day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, and the, the hearers are cut to the heart, they said. Oh my gosh, what shall we do? This is what we should do. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. By faith, we're saved. Faith is a firm persuasion, a conviction based upon hearing in the New Testament, always used of faith in God or Christ or things spiritual, according to Vine's expository dictionary of Greek New Testament words. Abraham's faith rested on the promise giver, not his own ability. And that's what our faith rests on. Our faith rests on God and His ability to fulfill His promises. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So, interesting note, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, in the New King James, it says, whoever is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. That's why this was a stumbling block to the Jewish people. Because this guy says all this stuff, he did all these wonderful things, but now he's hanging on a tree, he's cursed by God. They couldn't grasp that. And they couldn't grasp that he himself could take the place of someone else and take the sin. Because to them, it seemed like human sacrifice. And that's condemned in the law of Moses. Joshua chapter 8, verse 29. Ai was the city that they tried to capture and they got defeated because somebody stole some stuff that they weren't supposed to take. But eventually they got right with God and they captured and destroyed the city of Ai. And Joshua took the king of Ai, hung him on a tree. Now, the interesting thing is, they didn't leave him there. 
It says it hung him on the tree till evening. Obviously, he didn't last very long. I was reading in this book by the doctor at Calvary that uh, uh, he had uh, eyewitness accounts of uh, um, during uh, the Great War, they would hang people with their hands up above their heads and their feet just off the floor so they couldn't push up. And it didn't take long for that person to die. They'd suffocate. Psalm 22, verse 16 through 18. Talking about Jesus. They pierced my hands and feet. Then verse 18 says, They divide my garments, and for my clothing they cast lots. The shame of the cross. In the book, the doctor did several experiments since he was a doctor. It also says in the Old Testament that none of his bones were broken. So he did some experiments. He said, you know, some paintings, they picture Jesus with a uh, nail hole in his palm of his hand. But the good doctor said, you know, that wouldn't work because it would just rip out. It couldn't be down here in the wrist or in the forearm because to get the nail in there, it had to be way down here, about three inches, two and a half inches below the wrist. It had to be right in the palm of the hand because there's a bunch of little bones in there. And he said, every time, he tried to drive a nail through there. It would follow the same route. It would go right in between this special spot there. And all by itself, it would follow the opening and it would open up those little bones. He says it would press against a nerve and cause excruciating pain. Your hands have the most nerve endings of any part of your body. It's when I hit my finger with a hammer. Try not to say any bad words. It hurts. I broke this little finger bone twice. Within six weeks, it swelled up like Fred Flintstones. I couldn't believe it. It hurt so bad the second time I broke it. Oh, my goodness. I made a bunch of holes in the plywood, and I yelled, Oh! <laughs> hurt really bad. So the bones weren't broken when they nailed those nails in there. I found an article in Archaeology uh, biblical archaeological magazine. They had unearthed a uh, tomb and they found the bones of a young man who had been crucified and they could tell by the markings on the bones that he was not hardworking. He obviously was somebody uh, of nobility, so to speak. Didn't have to work hard. But they found his feet. His legs had, lower legs had been broken just like it says that they did in, uh, to the thieves on the cross. However, this young man, they put his feet together and drove a nail through his heel bone and into the wood. And the nail hit a knot in the wood and bent. And they couldn't get it out. So they buried the guy with part of the cross attached to him. But the doctor that wrote the book, Doctor at Calvary, he showed that by putting the feet on top, just raising your feet up a little bit, your feet were against the horizontal, the vertical part, and right between a couple of the bones there, a nice spot where they could put a nail. And it would support the weight of the <coughs> condemned man for a little while. But like we found, eventually can't breathe anymore. Praise God. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Isaiah chapter 53. John was an eyewitness to the crucifixion. 
So you'll find in John's Gospel, he's the only one who mentions this spear in the side. And I'll get to that in just a little bit. So Jesus is on the cross. All of chapter 53, every single verse of Isaiah chapter 53 is prophetic of Jesus. This is what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when the Holy Spirit told Philip to run up and catch up to the chariot. And as I said before, I used to think, man, that's awesome. He could hear what he was reading. Because in those days, you know, I thought maybe he was reading his mind. Because when I read, I don't read out loud. But in those days, everybody read out loud. So Philip comes up and he hears him reading it. You know what you're reading. And he's reading Isaiah chapter 53. And he has a question. Thank God for questions. I love people that ask questions. That, you know, one time I was working up in the uh, uh, waiting for some stuff. And this young man and I were talking and he had so many questions. I did my best to answer them. Didn't get saved at that point in time. But short time later, uh, one of the other carpenters that I worked with told me about this young man. He said, that young man said that he talked to you about the things of God. He says, and he asked you a lot of questions. And he said, you had a lot of answers. Yeah, I wish you would have got saved. I don't have all the answers. But I, I do know that the best answer is you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Praise God. Listen to this. I think this is interesting. Remember, Jesus is the bread of life. Well, what does it say here? In, let's see. Some of these translations, uh, they, you can use different words. For example, uh, it says in one of the verses that he was bruised or wounded. It says that, in effect, he was crushed. So you get wheat, and you just can't make bread out of wheat. The wheat has to be crushed in order for you to get any sustenance out of it. In chapter 52, Two. Verse 14, it says, Just as many were as astonished at you, so his visage or appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. The good doctor who wrote the book, Dr. Pierre Barbet, a Frenchman, he says that uh, he quotes from uh, an ancient historian named Horace that sometimes the victim was so torn by the scourging that it disgusted the people who did the scourge. In my opinion, what the Bible here is saying is that they tore Jesus up. They beat him up. If you read the accounts of the Gospels, first, he goes to the garden. He's stressed. He sweats drops of blood. Then they take him to a, a mock trial and they slap him around. And then uh, they take him to the governor, and he's had no sleep, had nothing to eat. And uh, the soldiers, uh, first Pilate scourges him, according to John's uh, gospel, whips the daylights out of him. Pilate himself doesn't do this, I'm sure. But the executioners had the liberty to use their imagination, to do whatever they wanted to do. This man's going to die. We can do whatever we want. It says that they, they put something over his face that they couldn't see, and they'd come up and hit him. <laughs> prophesy, who's hit you? Mocking, the shame of the cross, the whole ordeal. They put uh, what most 
Bible scholars think was like a helmet of thorns on his head, not just a, a little crown like most people think. A whole helmet of thorns. And it says they took a stick and beat it into his head. He spoke not a word. Praise God. Jesus died. Verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 3. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. The wrath of God was satisfied on the cross. Can you say, thank you, Jesus. Took that for us. Before I got saved, I remember reading the Bible and I couldn't believe God loved me until I read Romans chapter 5. It says, God proves he loves us. This way, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. He took our place. Praise God. Interestingly, according to Dr. Barbet, to bear one's cross is only found in Greek or rabbinic texts. Found in no other text to bear your cross. Endured the cross, the shame. I read a uh, interesting article just recently. Uh, there's a, uh, a ministry called Zola Levitt Ministries, and uh, Mr. Levitt has passed on, but is continuing. Anyway, they do tours of Israel and the Middle East, and uh, the tour guide wrote in the newsletter, "Well, we were in Ephesus, and uh, we're at this." Uh, First century um, building, turns out it's a public bathroom. And uh, the tour guide was telling us that, uh, you know, it's marble, it's first century, it's a nice place, everybody comes and does their business. And, but the rich people who have slaves would have the slave dip a sponge in vinegar and clean their bottom when they were done with their business. Very nice. Jesus is on the cross and he says, I thirst. And it says there's a pot of vinegar there. And one of the soldiers takes a sponge and dips it in there and tries to give it to Jesus. How humiliating could that be? Why? It's, some Bible commentators say it was there for the soldiers to drink. But to me, I think that sheds light on the humiliation, the shame of the cross. That they would do such a thing. Praise God. There is a uh, song called Just As I Am. Anybody ever hear it? How many ever heard of Billy Graham? Billy Graham got saved at a crusade, and that's the song they sang when they gave the invitation to come and receive Jesus. The young lady that wrote it, uh, her dad and her brother were ministers. When she wrote the song, she had just gotten saved. A friend of her family had come uh, and asked her, you know, are you really saved? And she wasn't. She had never trusted Jesus. When she was younger, she had uh, contracted some debilitating disease that left her with constant pain for the rest of her life. So she battled depression and the pain. And she was mad at God. But he asked her, have you ever come to Christ? As a result of her getting saved, she wrote this song anonymously. Years later, uh, somebody else found it and showed it to her and said, that's my song. Her brother told her later in life, he said, your song has probably brought more people to Christ than my entire ministry.
during my lifetime. Because it's a very simple song. Just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me to come to you. O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. You cannot clean yourself up to come to Christ. You can come however you are, and He will receive you. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no way reject. Just as I am, though tossed about, many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, and blind, Jesus gives me sight, riches, healing of the mind. All I need in Thee, I find, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, You will receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because Your promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, and I'll close with this. It's not up here. Jesus said, Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. J. Patrick, in Hastings Bible Dictionary, expounds on this word rest. It's not the rest of inactivity. You just lay there and do nothing. But the harmonious working of all the faculties and affections, your will, your heart, your imagination, and your conscience. Thank God. The Bible says God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I like to add, even imagine. Use your imagination once you're saved of what God can do. Nothing's impossible for God. Because each of us has found, once become in Christ, when we get out of Adam and into Christ, we are in the ideal atmosphere for the satisfaction and development of your will, your heart, your imagination, and your conscience. Because the blood of Jesus cleanses us. How much more? Hebrews chapter 12. How much more? No, sorry. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more? This is my favorite phrase in the whole New Testament. In all of Paul's writings, you'll find it five times in chapter 5 of the book of Romans. Much more. Hallelujah. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot or blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead work to serve the living God? You can come to Christ any way, anytime, anyhow, anywhere. Praise God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Say that with me. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He despised the shame of the cross because He knew what was lying ahead. He went through the garden of Gethsemane. He went through the mocking trial. He went through the scourging. He went through the... uh, uh, Carrying the cross. He went through getting nailed up there. He went through losing his life. He couldn't breathe anymore. Cramped up. Agony. For you and I. What a wonderful Savior. You say amen. Praise God. 
Well, let's 